case file number 6.02, Black Hat Time Machine, observed by Agent Crenshaw. Agent Crenshaw, still working on this Gibson thing. No, Chief, you, you gotta give me more time. Have you even listened to the recordings? It's like an encyclopedia of this hacker stuff. One of them just keeps going on and on about everything that ever went wrong on the internet. No, nobody knows this kind of crap. He's obviously up to no good. Yeah, the one called Hackalope. No, how is it not illegal? The information is dangerous. And and the other one, the other one, Ymir. He's always going on about everything the CIA and FBI did wrong. All the wiretap stuff, all the crazy projects. How does he know? We already know he's infiltrated NASA, and I am this close to catching him skipping leg day. Now just ask yourself, Chief, what would J. Edgar Hoover do? Come, Chief, all I need is more time. Sooner or later they're going to slip up and I will catch them. Hacking the Gibson. Uh, the accounting subdirector of the Gibson's working really hard. I think we got a hacker. Hey, Mayor. Yeah. Did I tell you about that project I've been working on? Mm, which one? Uh, so, so I got a Raspberry Pi and a 3D printer and a uh, slightly used flux capacitor off of eBay. Okay. And I made a time machine. Ooh. Is it is it a space time machine? No, no, it only brings us back to security conferences. So we're going back to uh, Black Hat 2013. Okay. Uh, and that's today's episode. No. So the title of this episode is Black Hat Time Machine. Uh, as I think I told you before, off off uh, mic, I was moving from one laptop to another, and I found all of the papers from Black Hat 2013. Right, right, right. And I realized that was about 10 years ago. And hey, it's from that era that we keep talking about of when like hacking turned from the graffiti era to the money-making era. I mean, it was the tail end of that part, but like that's right around when we're talking about. And it was like almost 10 years ago. Uh, we just did Black Hat 2022. Well, by the time of this publication, it'll be coming up on 2023. Uh, <laughs> right, yeah. As we've let slip more than once, we're way ahead on our, on our recording, uh, which is very atypical of podcasts. So the first one I'm going to get out of the way uh, just because it bears talking about, but not spending a ton of time on. I think it was the second episode I did, third episode we did at all, was a Tale of Two Protocols about SSL and TLS. Yeah, 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 I remember. So the paper for the breach tool, which was a tool that came after crime, was presented at this Black Hat. What this did was, was it created an information disclosure because there was no, the length of the header of the SSL header was guessable and it caused a brute force condition. Mm, okay. And it affected all the TLS protocols at the time. They fixed it for good by making some changes to the gzip library that was used on that every browser used. Mm, okay. They changed the implementation. A I want to talk about wanted to mention because you know those SSL vulnerabilities were a big deal at that point in time. Mm-hmm, and right. uh it's also a really good example of the um, responsible disclosure thing that we were talking about. In fact, that we talked about it at some length in my last episode when we were talking about the loft and their congressional testimony. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because they found it, they reported it, and it was fixed before the presentation. They have a slide saying, it's fixed now. 
it was a good example of, of exactly that of researchers getting credit publishing to the vendors that can fix it early and having it fixed by the time the exploit is reported generally mm-hmm. okay yeah. and in this case it was not just one vendor it was several vendors because it was a general tls problem that one isn't worth spending a ton of time on but I have a couple of other things that I thought were interesting that they came up that came up. One of them was about the smart grid. There are actually a couple of talks on the smart grid, but I'm going to focus on one in particular that was called uh, energy fraud and orchestrated blackouts issues with wireless metering protocols, uh, MBUS or WMBUS. Um, MBUS is the name of the protocol. It's actually used for more than just it, it was a protocol purposed for general industrial stuff, industrial metering protocols and they used it and they extended it in order to use it for smart okay interesting so so they didn't come up with it they just repurposed something that was already done and then the w makes it wireless (laughs) (laughs) this guy did a lot of good research of crypto analysis research on a known ciphertext attack basically he just listened to what was happening on the wire Mm -hmm. Um, and he did a lot of um, investigation of the amount of entropy and various integrity disclosure um analysis of the actual packets okay and he found basically that the systems don't have a nonce value built into them hmm. uh they use time as essentially the source of randomness for a lot of the, a lot of what they do right right and so that uses a good cipher suite a good but not great cipher suite especially now which is aesctr uh you know what i meant to because i don't remember off the off the top of my head what ct what the ctr implementation is i know cbc is continuous block cipher mm-hmm. which he actually recommended as as uh an advancement and right now we use gcm which is galagos counter mode which is kind of the best implementation of a way to randomize keys as you're sequencing through the blocks that you're encrypting oh uh um, ctr is short for counter okay so straight counter method okay which is very computationally easy but also more predictable Right, um, right. And it's considered weaker. I knew that that was on the AES implementations, the weaker, the weaker one, but I couldn't remember uh, what it was because we because it's been like off the list of things you should do for a while now. <laughs> so by basically having a meter that you capture, you can set up a condition where you get like a disable meter packet, okay. and then you can shield it to basically get a copy of the of the packets and then you can use that to replay under some conditions okay so you can do a denial of service attack a denial of actual electrical service attack mm-hmm. yeah and it was theorized that you could if you did enough of these cause enough of a disruption to the grid that you would actually cause a power delivery disruption mm. uh, by basically causing a lot of fluctuation in the load of the grid right right yeah which is, in fact, when you did your episode um, on Ukraine, uh, Ukraine t- 2007 power station attack, yeah, was one of the things that they that one of the goals that they had in that attack. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I mean, that attack, that um, method, um, the actual payload of the attack was is not exclusive to this particular attack vector. This is just a way of going about it. Right. Um, right. And the thing that I found interesting was that we're 10 years later and it's not just that computing is cheaper scaling up computing is easier Mm, right 
you don't have to buy the supercomputer. You can essentially rent it if you're yeah. doing it the right way. So doing an actual scaled crypto attack on this becomes more possible for large actors and state actors. So I consider a large actor one that can devote, you know, at least a hundred thousand dollars of, of in us money to infrastructure and operations. Mm -hmm. um, although I might have to scale that up and then nation state <laughs> actors can do at least 10 times that probably on the order of, you know, a hundred right, yeah, yeah. or better that, and I'm not talking about like the big nation state actors. I'm saying even country like North Korea is known in the last 10 years to really scale up their cyber warfare Iran too and they have being sanctioned entities they have less money to spare but they're going hard at it and they're willing to devote more of their resources to it by percentage than than the large actors like china russia and us it's one of those things you can't fall behind the curve uh too far so it makes sense mm -hmm. to spend whatever you can um on it right now yeah well it's also a great avenue for asymm for asymmetric attacks mm -hmm. yeah and if you're in these sanctioned entities you have the ability to cause an effect that you can't with conventional means right yeah exactly so i figured hey maybe somebody would address this but i actually found a paper in the institution of energy and technology that showed that tax that uh, attacks like this are are still expected to be possible and this mm. was published in 2020 uh and there was a paper not uh, another paper by, uh, I think it was Hopkins, that was in 2017, right. basically saying the same thing. Although I got less detail from that because I could only see the summary. The PDF was not available. None of my tricks worked. <laughs> <laughs> and the thing is, this came after, and this I, I wanted to talk about this because we're talking about the smart grid, but this wasn't in 2013. This was actually presented in Black Hat 2009 by a guy named Mike Davis. What he did was, was he uh, was able to load a Trojan firmware onto a smart meter okay and the thing about the smart meters that design of smart meters at least and i wasn't able to compare how different that is from the from the current mbus smart meters i don't think that there's a difference but like when they when you connect a meter to your house smart meter or not mm -hmm. they don't connect to like your wireless network they don't have like a phone line hooked into that stuff okay what the smart meters do the way that they work is they're a mesh network actually Oh, yeah. I think I remember you talking about this before. Yeah. And so, like, when you firmware update one in a neighborhood, it propagates to the right. other meters. Yeah. Well, what Mike Davis found was that they don't have any kind of software signing for that firmware. <laughs> so he demonstrated that this was possible, and then he modeled how it would happen if a set of vulnerable meters were, like, in a neighborhood or a set of neighborhoods and it right, propagated yeah. like super fast it went it like covered his map in 24 hours <laughs> uh, i i couldn't re-look at the pictures because the in the published white paper those pictures were redacted mm, right <laughs> so i just have my memory to go on when i was at that talk um <laughs> but like it demonstrates hey this is like the smart grid stuff has a whole dimension of security that you have to really think about Right. Yeah. Um, exactly. It's not even just about disrupting one person's house as an individual attack. Um, the the scaling it up as a as a power grid disruption is is a scary thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. This is also as then as kind of the next topic. There were several talks about SCADA and um, IACS, uh, Integrated Automated Control Systems. 
One was a talk called uh, Compromising Industrial Facilities from 40 Miles Away, Mm -hmm. um, which was uh, that it was a talk about uh, injecting commands by radio frequency into industrial automated control systems. And these control systems are used in heavy industry all over the place, not just factories and business automation type stuff, but meaning like smart-ish building stuff. Right, yeah, yeah. also like oil derricks and refinery operations mm-hmm. yeah. and stuff like that. And they use the uh, the public RF bands, uh, 900 megahertz and 2.4 gigahertz bands, which are also the bands where 802.11, the regular Wi-Fi works, as we talked about in our Wi-Fi business, or in our Wi-Fi episode, uh, Lo-Fi Wi-Fi. Um, see, I told you it would become in handy that we did all of these uh, those those episodes. <laughs> All the all the foundation, all that all those foundation episodes. I know that they weren't the most entertaining, but we, tr- we, we I, I tried to tell some some interesting stories in them. All right, yeah. uh, and this is considerably better from everything that I've read. But one major problem that was identified was that the keys tend to be preloaded from the factory. Not a lot of places put new keys on the on their devices because you have to rekey every device. Okay, yeah. and so they have when they have the factory key it was you know the same thing that we had back in that era all of your ssid passwords all of your admin passwords for 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 like your routers for the same well it's the same kind of thing yeah 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 exactly you buy the same gadget that they're using and you have the same keys that they're using because there was no randomization of keys or anything by lot or anything like that made it plug and play <laughs> <laughs> And then uh, another one was um, called the skated that didn't cry wolf. Who's really attacking your ICS devices. He concentrated on public facing control systems, which again, going back to that 2007 Ukraine uh, power station attack, that was how they got in. We all know that that's been a bad practice. That was even like a standard practice thing at that point. Although it was relatively new. I think a lot of places that had, come to rely on that hat we're still trying to figure out how they were going to deal with that situation right yeah yeah i mean it's one thing to know oh this is a problem and it's another thing to say oh no i've actually already built my business around the fact that this capability exists right yeah. why i can't just turn it off because like i've changed the way i do business because of it mm-hmm. so he did a couple of things with this idea he scanned the web he did going back to our internet scanning episode <laughs> i can't believe i scanned the whole thing i just remember because these are a bunch of funny title ones that i was able <laughs> to sneak in but uh he scanned the web for these control systems and found a bunch of them and he was like well they're out there so we set up a bunch of honey pots like uh eight a dozen honey pots in various mm-hmm. places uh that emulated the these control systems and he found that there were attackers scanning for and attempting to exploit known bugs on all of these systems. Oh, okay. You know, VXWorks bugs, authentication bugs. He had a, like a whole page of known bugs that were right. not super sophisticated bugs. In fact, a lot of them, if not all of them, would have been the kind of thing I would have expect I would expect right now to see in a botnet that's spraying the internet for the the uh easy web bug du jour. Right, yeah. So, I mean, we know that we haven't solved the SCADA ICS problem. And even that some of the things, the like a public-facing control system is not a totally solved problem based on what we 
we've we've seen and talked about recently. I think that we've gotten a lot better on the preloaded keys side, but the public facing control systems, I don't think that that's a completely solved problem. And it kind of shows how, as a friend of mine puts it, it's like putting out a cigar, even though we've identified, even though we know what the right thing to do is, even though the advice of what the right thing to do is, is everywhere on the internet, any professional who who's even sniffed near this stuff, secure, not just security professional, but like the sysadmins, Right. should know that this is like not putting it not making this public without like significant authentication controls and stuff around it is a bad idea yeah yeah, yeah. but it's still not universal getting that last you know two percent seems to never happen yeah i mean i think a lot of that also just comes down to people that want to do the right thing um mm. just are restricted from higher up management or like yeah. you know they can't fight back against it so they end up putting stuff like right there on the internet right well i mean for like public authentication if i had to do it and i had to do it on the cheap i'd have a pfsense firewall and i would put in a very simple open ssh vpn or something like that or straight open vpn and that way i have potentially strong network authentication yeah to, yeah yeah to the same front end but even doing that means that everybody who's doing the control side needs to have the client and everything configured on their end yeah yeah exactly and that reminds me like just a slight tangent i read a reddit post i think it was on the sysadmin board the other week of someone basically saying that he was having to fight his company he wouldn't you know throw away account uh wouldn't give the name of the company but the vp of the company uh, refused to use two-factor authentication he wanted it pulled off of all his systems VPN question was an older guy, you know, was there as one of the founders of the company, uh, demanded two-factor not be used, also avidly just served porn while at work, and had already been entangled in, I think, one or two incidents of phishing email scams, where this this admin question had, like, caught it just at the onset and kind of, like, you mm. know, fixed it right there and then, and, like, you know, thankfully, otherwise, you know, when, when ransomware to hell or whatever, and his higher-ups and his management basically told him, do what the VP wants. Uh, don't do two-factor for him. Basically, the, the comments said, what you need to do is get it in writing from HR and from your management yeah. that they accept the risk that you are proposing to them and you are not at fault in any way. Yeah. And, you know, can you put him in a fucking box? <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. Although, like, honestly, that's that can be very tricky to do. Mm -hmm. Some of that is difficult for me because I know how easy it is to set up UB keys. Yes. It's like, just touch it. Just touch it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. It's not, I mean, but hearkening back to the January 6th episode, you know, we kind of touched on the fact that most government employees required to use PIV or CAC um, cards. But not Congress. Yeah, not yeah. Congress. For <laughs> yeah, no, that's a good point. I love how this is turning into, into our own little best of episode. <laughs> well, I think some of our, I think some of the intelligence episodes are actually some of our best episodes, um, but that's that's not the core podcast. They were the, they okay. were the smartest ones. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> it's in the name. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so, another thing that came up a couple of times in in 2013. So, again, the loft episode we talked about Mudge and how he was a DARPA project manager. As a DARPA, pro DARPA project manager, he set up the Cyber Fast Track. Okay. So to remind you, he created an abbreviated system for uh, uh, for 
proposing and approving smaller projects for smaller amounts of money. And so there were actually two examples of cyber fast track funded projects that were talked about in, in, in this uh, black hat. Okay. One of them was something called Project Daisho made by Great Scott Gadgets. Uh, they're still around. They don't sell the die shows anymore, mm-hmm. but they have some other cool gadgets that are worth looking at. But what Project Die Show did was it was essentially built as a universal hardware man in the middle. Okay. So you could look at traffic from one end to the other on an HDMI connection or an Ethernet connection or a USB connection. Oh, okay. You just needed the right add-on card. It was the same gadget and the same the same API, the same gadget in order to interface and read that and read the traffic off of the wire. Nice. It was really cool, and it, it was part of the funding to make it happen was uh, was through the Cyber Fast Track, and uh, it ha- does have the distinction of being the first USB three compliant open source hardware device. Really? Yeah. The second one was a guy talking about how to detect various compromises of Windows systems. Uh, he was talking about both pass the hash and use of shell hmm. of CMD.exe. Right, right. So this was also funded by, at least in part, by the by the Dark Fast Track program, and uh, he made a an open source project called Breachbox, which essentially replaces the shell and detects hash use by where the hashes are coming from, hmm. making the assumption that network activity happens in a particular direction. You don't see a lot of lateral movement in networks most right. of the time, and. At least the lateral movement network activity stuff and um, the use of hashes. I think the Microsoft, you know what? I thought I was going to remember it and I should have pulled it out. So, and we did talk about this in the, in the Mimi Cats episode where a lot of the past the hash stuff happened. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of the strategies for currently detecting past the hash using Microsoft's built in tools and other security monitoring tools are really around some of the same exact ideas on seeing where the hashes come from Mm -hmm. um, and how often you're seeing them in order to, to see if, if they're being passed or if they're normal usage. Hmm. So that was part of what I thought was interesting about it was that his strategy was kind of the progenitor for what the standard uh, detection techniques are nowadays. Interesting. And then I guess the last thing we're going to talk about is there were several talks about automated malware analysis. Hmm. There are a couple of talks from Cuckoo Box and there were a few others. What they were talking about is malware analysis at scale, hmm. being able to take lots of samples and run them through automated analysis. One of them actually talked about evasion of automated analysis tools, but Cuckoo Box was talking about scaling it up through a Hadoop cluster to be able to run malware samples through the same profiling in a massively parallel fashion that didn't require human intervention. Hmm. This is the cornerstone of what a lot of anti-malware malware identification stuff that we have today really works with the um everything that with like FireEye and wildfire uh fire yeah, yeah, yeah. being and wildfire being palo alto's service offering that's similar which i only mention because i have the most experience with with actually using it but they're using those techniques that started with that with papers like that with that paper and, and, and ideas like it um 
in order to create these service offerings that allow us to have essentially malware profiling or potential malware profiling in not quite real time, but like in under an hour and usually within minutes. Right. That entire level of our ability to analyze malware, which is admittedly a paid service and one of those things that is unlikely to ever not be a paid service. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, just because you need an infrastructure to make that work. But it does trickle down because hashes of, of stuff identified that way trickle down into what we'll call the free indicator pool. Right, right. But that set of techniques was as an academic exercise, because this came from academia. Um, that paper was from academia, started there and presented at Black Hat 10 years ago. And we've been using it in production for, you know, five years, I, I feel like at least. Mm, that's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. I thought that was interesting to seeing kind of the beats of how we've progressed the things that we have solved and the things that are less of a concern to me and that the project I show man in the middle on the wire thing has become a less and less explored Avenue nowadays. Right. Yeah. Even though it looked like they had kind of the, the perfect tool built right as that Avenue of exploration was kind of beginning to fade. Yeah. You never really know like what kind of like twists and turns things will take. Yeah. Um, heck, when I talk about in our in the Lo-Fi Wi-Fi episode about how Wi-Fi created this world where all the layer two attacks that we had kind of not worried about for a while of like people being able to get on the same network as you mm -hmm. all of a sudden became much more relevant very quickly. Right. Yeah. 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 Um, because again, you never know. <laughs> <laughs> so I think we'll set our watch and uh, I'll do. 2022s in like 2021 or so we just um, um spent the uh the past week doing a car trip listening to a lot of neil degrasse tyson mm -hmm. so um just remember for a time machine it needs to be able to be time and space because you got to mm -hmm. land back on earth exactly where you need to otherwise you're just flowing around in the vacuum well, so that's the thing is that I'm gonna uh, is that there's a whole like circuit for locking onto the gravitometric signature of the Earth as a as a planetary body. Mm -hmm. So as long as you can do that, you don't need to travel through space. You just need to be in the same relative space to the object you want to be near. Mm, sounds good. Find out about new episodes at r slash hacking the Gibson on Reddit and support the podcast by contributing at the Wikimedia Foundation or Electronic Frontier Foundation.